Would you take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 4? If you have one of the Red Bibles, Ephesians 4 is on page 977. As we continue our study through the book of Ephesians this morning, our text is Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. And if you're able, I want to invite you to stand one more time so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He had also descended into the lower regions the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Would you remain standing as we pray once more? Father, would you now empower the preaching of your word, enable me to preach in the power of the Spirit of God, and enable us to hear by the power of the Spirit of God so that we might be affected, changed, and conformed to the image of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Everyone wants to belong to a community, to a family that is bigger than themselves. It's why even when you look out in the world, we have things like fraternities or sororities or uh, the Masons or the Shriners Club or even gangs, right? It's because everyone is screaming out to us that they want to belong to a community and more than that, to a family. It's why even in these groupings, they call one another brother or sister. It's because all of them are the world's effect to try to imitate what Christ has so graciously given us in the church. You see, 
In the first three chapters of Ephesians, there are so many blessings that Paul reminds us of that we've received individually. Each of us has been chosen by Him to be holy and blameless adopted children of God. We've been uh, given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the, of the fact that one day we'll be taken by Christ forever. We've been given a glorious inheritance. We've been redeemed, forgiven, our eyes open to the glory of Christ. But one blessing we do not want to miss in the midst of all those individual blessings is that when God calls us out of this world to Himself, He also calls us to one another. He gives us the church, a community, a body, a family. And when we look at Ephesians 4 through 6, the second half of this letter, Paul now writes to us as believers as to how we are to live as a church. How we're to live both corporately with one another and how we're to live when we go out into the world. Many people have noted that Ephesians 1 through 3 is largely focused on these, the richness of the theological blessings that God has for us in Christ, and that the latter part of the letter is really focused on commands, on what we are to do. Now, we can't make that division too sharp. It's not as if there's, there's nothing we see we're to do in the first three chapters, and it's not as if there are no theological truths in verses chapters 4 through 6. In fact, what we're looking at today is going to be a rich theological text. By the time we get to Ephesians 5 and, and think about the nature of marriage, you can't think about that without having deep theological reflection. But it is fair that something like that division does happen. In the first three chapters of division, of, of Ephesians, there is one command in the first three chapters, and that one command is remember. In the last three chapters of Ephesians, there are 39 commands. Clearly, there's a shift in the letter as we are taught how we are to live. In fact, I think that in our text this morning, the very first verse, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I think serves as a thesis for everything that follows. Here's how the chapter begins that we're looking at this morning. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. We know Paul writes this in prison. He's there on behalf of the Lord. He's been a faithful minister to Christ. He suffered for it. I therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That right there, the rest of the letter flows out of that. Paul is teaching us as believers. If we take that a little bit, when Paul talks about uh, our calling to which we've been called, in Paul's letters, to be called is to be saved. That's what he means. When he says called, he means saved. That's why when he writes to the Corinthians, consider your calling, brothers. He means consider the fact that, that you've been called to Christ, that you've been saved. When Paul writes in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. He does not mean all things work together for, group, for good for a special group of believers, those who are called, he means all things work together for good for all who are saved. For to be called is to be saved. So when Paul writes then, walk, that is live, live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, what he's saying is, in the first three chapters, I've laid out for you the glory of the blessings that you have in being saved. I've laid out for you who you are in Christ. Now live in a manner that's worthy of who you are in Him, that is worthy of of your salvation. And again, 
the rest of the book really fleshes out what that looks like. How do we live in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called? Our text this morning, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, I think basically just breaks down into two sections. The first one is in verses 1 through 6, and there Paul reflects on the unity that is ours as a body of Christ. And then in verse 7, you'll notice there's, there's a contrast that begins in verse 7. The, the verse begins with a con, uh, conjunction but, right? But grace was given. So now he's going to show a contrast in light of what he said before. And that leads to then the second section, which is verses 7 through 16. So if you want to break down the text, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 7 through 16. I'm going to follow then that breakdown, that divide, and only have two sermon points this morning but I'm going to make them extra long. I'm going to make sure to hit my word count, right? So even though fewer sermon, fewer sermon points, a lot of words in each sermon point. And in them, I, I just want to give us uh, two truths, I think, and, and how can we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called? Two things. One, first, we must take on a gracious posture to maintain our spirit-given unity. We must take on a gracious posture, that is, a posture of grace toward one another to maintain our spirit-given unity. And we see that in verses 1 through 6. Now, I want to walk through verses 1 through 6 in the way that most makes sense to me. And I think the way it most makes sense to me is to start with the truth that Paul lays out in verses 4 through 6. Starting in verse 4, Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, I don't know if you're accounting. I suspect you weren't. But just in case you weren't, there's seven times the word one occurs there. Paul is making the point that the church is one united body. When the Spirit brought us new life and in Christ gave us life, bringing us together as the body of Christ, He brought us together as a unified people. And what Paul then lays out in verses 4 through 6 is this makes absolute sense. In fact, there's no way we should even have a category to think of the people of God, the church of God, being divided. He says, just think of it this way. First of all, he leads off with this. There is one body. Uh, body is an image that Paul will often use as a metaphor for the church. He uses it here in Ephesians. He uses it in the letter to the Corinthians. But he, but he says the church were, were like a body. The idea that you could have a body and the body be divided and, and you know, separated in different sections, that doesn't make sense. So in the same way, he says the church is the body of Christ. So already that metaphor there communicates unity. But then he notes that there's one Spirit, one Lord Jesus Christ, one God and Father of all. He, he notes that in, in verses 4, 5, and 6. There's one body and one Spirit. Verse 5, one Lord, which is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that because he's already mentioned the Spirit. And in verse 6, he says, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. So he notes that each person of the Trinity, there's one Spirit, one Son, one Father. Now, the reason that I think is driving home Paul's point is because of a truth he realized on the day he was converted, a truth he never forgot. Do you remember his conversion? 
He's on his way to Damascus, persecuting believers when the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ appears to him in the sky. And, and you'll remember Christ's wording because, because it's surprising. Paul, whose name at that time is Saul, is persecuting the church. And the risen Lord Jesus Christ addresses him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, when the Saul heard that, when Paul heard that, it locked in his mind a truth he never got away from. The church is the body of Christ. And you can no more say that the church is divided than you can say Christ is divided. That's why when he begins the first letter to the Corinthians and he says to them, I hear that there are divisions among you. The very first question you then ask them is, is Christ divided? doesn't make any sense. Well, just as there's one Spirit and one Father, one Son, so the body of Christ is one. And he goes on from there, there's also one hope that we have. You and I long for the day when Jesus Christ returns and we're raised from the dead and we will dwell with Christ forever in a new heavens and a new earth. Well, that's not one hope among many. It's not as if you have an eternal hope and you have an eternal hope and you have an eternal hope. We have one eternal hope. We all long for that. When we say, come Lord Jesus, it's because we're all longing for the same eternal glory to come. And then there's one faith. Now, faith can refer to that which we do, we believe, but in the Bible, faith can also refer to the content of what we believe. And here, most likely, one faith, he means one gospel message one truth. That is, you and I all believe and all became believers by holding on to one truth, the faith that God the Son took on flesh and lived among us, that He lived a perfect life that we could not live, that He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that He was raised from the dead on the third day, so that if we repent and believe in Him, we have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, we're adopted as sons of God. That one faith we all hold to, and there's one baptism. There's one way by which we profess that faith, and that's by being lowered into water and brought up again so that we are showing in a picture form that we've been united with the one who lived and died, was buried, and was raised on the third day. So in light of all of that, Paul says, well, if there is then one body, one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all, who is over on and on through all, one hope, one faith, one baptism, then obviously the church is united. We are one. But Paul also knows that we have an enemy, an enemy who hates the unity of the local church and is always working to undermine it and bring division. And therefore, he writes in verses 1 through 3, how we need to live in order to maintain this unity that has been given to us. And so here's what he writes in verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or as I've summed all of those up, having a posture of grace toward one another. You see, Paul knows that when you take people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different classes, different race, and you bring them all together as one unified people, there is always going to be a threat to that unity. 
We could give in to our fleshly desires. We could sin and be selfish. Well, that's going to agree with the unity. But even if we don't intentionally sin, it's just hard to walk in unity as different people. We can do things well and still be grading on each other, can't we? I mean, many of us are quirky. I'm quirky. Now, I know most, if not all, of you find those things endearing. (laughs) But you could theoretically imagine someone might not. And that's you too. And not only that, but, but the church, we do not bring in and take in those who are the elite and impressive of society. Right? We don't have this bar to clear. You must be really impressive and really get along well out there. No, no, no. You can be a social outcast, as socially awkward as they come. And you bow the knee to Jesus Christ and profess faith in those baptismal waters, and you're my brother and sister in Christ. So when you bring that together, and let's just throw in a dash of the fact that we can be sinful, we can be selfish, we can intentionally do things that hurt one another, intentionally neglect one another, intentionally speak evil one another. And you throw all those people together to use the words of Bonnie Tyler, it's like we're living in a powder keg and giving off sparks, right? This thing could blow at any minute, it feels like. And so this is why Paul says there's a certain way you need to conduct yourselves. In order to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that He's given us as a people, first He says, you need to walk with all humility. That's the opposite of pride, right? To be humble, we can take our cues from Philippians chapter 2. Remember how how Paul lays out what humility looks like in Philippians chapter 2. We esteem others as better than ourselves. We We do not exalt ourselves above others. We do not think of ourselves as entitled or that we should always be receiving praise. You, you can see how, how that kind of thing, moving in the direction of pride, could bring division, but you can see how humility maintains unity, how it breeds unity. If all of us walk in a way, esteeming others above ourselves, that just breeds and strengthens our unity. Not only that, Paul says, with walk with humility. He also says, walk with gentleness. Gentleness is the opposite of harshness. Again, it's easy for us to imagine how being harsh toward one another could drive one another away. Being gentle with one another draws one another in. He then also says, with patience. Now, we know that you and I, if our faith rests in Christ, we're on our way to the day when we will all be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. John says it this way, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. But that day is not yet. And so, as you and I grow in holiness, as you and I grow to be more and more like Jesus Christ, that process may well take time. It can be a slow one. We're developing at different rates. And so, Paul says one of the things you need to do as well is you need to have patience with one another. And, he adds, bearing with one another in love. It simply is the case that you and I as a people, if we walk together long enough for any amount of time, we're going to sin against each other. Now, yes, it demands, the Bible demands, when we sin, we confess our sin, we repent, and that we are forgiven. 
But the mere fact that we do sin against each other, even if we forgive one another, even if we repent, it still means that there is going to be this, this need for us to bear with one another in love because we hurt one another. There are all kinds of reasons the enemy will point out, all kinds of hurts in the church, and, and the enemy can give you all kinds of reasons why you need to bail. In fact, individuals have. Anytime you go just witnessing to people at, at, you know, randomly in the South and you find out they were raised in church, oftentimes they will say something like this, oh, I was in church until this happened. I was hurt. I was wounded. I was something like that. And then I got out of there. And what Paul says is if we're going to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we need to bear with one another. We need to say, yes, I was hurt. And I will bear with my brother in love. Now, Finally, he concludes all of that then after saying with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another love, he begins then verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, there's a reason why you and I are driven to walk in humility, driven to walk in gentleness with patience and bearing with one another in love. It's because you and I are eager to maintain the unity that the Spirit has given us as a people who have been called out of the world to Christ and to one another. Now, it may well be, in fact, my guess is, I mean, this is the way the text reads, actually, that when I said all of that, you and I hear that thinking of ourselves as the acting subject. Here's what I mean. We heard that thinking, all right, I need to be humble. I need to be gentle. I need to be patient. I need to bear with Him in love. I need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, although these people are crazy, right? But let's stop for a second and put ourselves on the object, as the object, on the objective end of that. Aren't you thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Apostle Paul, calls all these people to be humble for you, towards you, to be gentle with you, to be patient with you, to bear with you in love, to be eager to maintain the unity that the Spirit has given in the bond of peace with you? And if we go back to the us being the subject, we might say, well, this is quite a high calling. I mean, good grief, the, the Lord is asking us to do a lot. But isn't it everything He's already pictured for us and done for us? He was for us humble. He was, he, Paul's language, the Son who is equal to the Father, took on flesh to become a servant to us. That's humility. He is gentle with us. The bruised reed, he does not break. And you and I are often, if not always, bruised reeds. He's gentle with us. He's patient with us. Just, just imagine how patient the Lord has been with you as you have struggled and grown. And talk about bearing with one another in love. Oh my goodness. How many reasons have we given our Lord to say enough is enough? But he doesn't. He bears with us in love. So, thank God that our brothers and sisters are called to walk with a gracious posture toward us, and we can take our cues from Christ in walking in a gracious posture toward them. But this is the place Paul starts. Because the church is one, you and I must take on a gracious posture, our posture of grace, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But then... 
Paul makes a contrast, number seven, which brings us to our second point. We must serve one another with our gifts so that we grow into Christ's likeness. We must serve one another with our gifts so that we grow into Christ's likeness. Verse 7 starts with a contrast. I've already noted it a few times now, but we'll see it here in the text. Verse 7, but. Now, when he says but, it's not because Paul's backpedaling on what he's just said. He's not now saying, I didn't really mean we're one, or I don't really mean that we need to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the of peace. No, no, he's saying, but I don't want you to think unity means uniformity. That's why he's providing this contrast. Not to go against unity, but to say unity doesn't mean uniformity. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I want to flesh this out a bit, but I remember I preached this text 22 years ago. 22 years ago, when I was studying for this text, I was sitting in a bookstore slash coffee house in Jackson, Tennessee that no longer exists, and I wish the Lord would bring it back, uh, called Davis Kid Booksellers. Uh, the first 12, 13 years that I, I was pastoring, I was alone, and our church was a warehouse. And so I worked every day alone in a warehouse, and so oftentimes I would think, you know what, I'm going I'm to go to Davis Kid Booksellers and uh, study there instead of here. And so one day I was there, I was studying this text in particular. If I preach this text 22 years from now, I think I will tell this story again. I was sitting in Davis Kid. I was studying Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I got to verse 7, and I noted Paul's making a contrast. But he's not saying we're not unified. The contrast he's trying to make is, or that he's making is, is, is we're, yes, we're unified, but, and I thought, how do I, how do I illustrate this? We are unified, but we're not uniform. And as I was thinking through this, sitting there at my table, sipping my coffee, over the loudspeaker, they made an announcement. Would you please welcome, from a nearby middle school, a group of musicians. Now, they came walking in, all holding their instruments. And so I looked at them. This did not catch me by surprise. Uh, Davis Kidd had a little stage there where they would often have live performances. What they actually said over the loudspeaker was this. Welcome from a local middle school, the middle school tuba band. And literally every student walked in and opened and pulled out his tuba. Not, not like one tuba and other instruments. Everyone had the same tuba. Not, not the same tuba. Multiple tubas. You know what I'm saying, right? And they all just sat there and, you know, the whole thing. And I thought, well, I'm going to go back to the warehouse, you know. <clears throat> but I did think to myself, there's not a better illustration of what Paul's saying. The fact that we're unified doesn't mean we all play the same instrument. We've been given different gifts. That's what he's saying in verse 7. But grace, he's picturing grace as, as grace being a gift from Christ. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, when he says that, he's going to ground that truth in an Old Testament quotation. We see the quotation in, in verse 8. Therefore, it says, now he's going to quote Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. I mean, that works really well, doesn't it? He says in verse 7, 
grace was given to each other. Each of us has received gifts. And then he quotes Psalm 68, 18, in which David writes, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. That's very helpful that Paul quotes the Old Testament text. This is exactly what he means when he says in verse 7, here's the problem. Psalm 68, 18 doesn't say that precisely. Now, let me give you a little background on Psalm 68, and then I'll tell you what that verse says. Psalm 68 is the psalm we opened the service with. You probably just thought when I was reading it, man, Lee chose a really long call to worship today. Well, I did choose it because I wanted to reference it. Psalm 68, here's what's going on. It's a psalm, according to the superscript, it's written by David. And it's a psalm in which God is pictured as having been victorious. And now as a victorious warrior, he's coming back on his mountain, that is Jerusalem, to reign there to reign from Jerusalem. There's this mention of God coming to rest, to sit in His sanctuary. So, so many people think, and I think this is probably true, that Psalm 68 may well have been written to celebrate the moment when David and the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant and, and put it in the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle, because the Ark represented the presence of God. And so, the picture of God coming and dwelling among His people and reigning among them on His mountain, which would have been in Jerusalem, would have been perfectly pictured with them bringing the ark, putting it in the inner sanctuary of the temple, of the tabernacle, and God reigning there from Jerusalem. But here's the problem. Psalm 68.18 says, now you look at verse 8, and I'm going to tell you what Psalm 68.18 says. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he received gifts from men. Not only does it not say what Paul says, it says the precise opposite of what Paul says. Paul quotes it saying he gave gifts. Psalm 68.18 says he received gifts. So, what's going on? Well, some suggests that what's going on here is that Paul understands, well, then no, 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 let me say it this way. The first option we could say is that some think that Paul just changed the word. I don't think that, that they did it just, just willy-nilly, right? He looked at it and he thought, I don't like the way that's read. I'm going to say it a bit differently. There are a couple of reasons why we should not go that route. One reason is just because Paul's not going to do that, right? He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Bible's unified. He's not going to change it. A second reason, just practically, Paul's not going to do that, is it doesn't help his argument. I mean, could you imagine if I were up here? Let's say, let's say last week, Tom stood up here and for some reason made an outlandish claim. Kentucky is not a good place to live. It's a terrible place to live. And let's say I stand up a week later and I say, Kentucky's a great place to live. Remember, Tom last week said it's a great place to live. Then what's going to happen? When I make that reference to what Tom said last week, every one of you is instead of continuing to look at me, you're going to turn to each other and you're going to go, that's not what he said. He actually said the opposite. He said it was a terrible, I mean, it was a bad judgment, but he said it was a terrible place to live, right? That's what's going to happen. You would think to yourself, Lee would have been better off to make his argument without making any reference to Tom. 
to try to ground his argument because it undermines his argument. Well, if Paul's just changing the word, he would have been better off not referencing Psalm 618. It would undermine his argument. It's not what's going on. First of all, what Paul's doing here is, one, he's recognizing that Psalm 68 is fulfilled in Christ. That's why he picks up on the ascended language, right? So in verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In verse 9, he says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul says, first of all, I, I, I want you to recognize Psalm 68.18 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the one who descended. He is the one who came to us. He is the one who was victorious as a warrior. He is the one who is now enthroned as the reigning king, the God-man, even as Nathan brought up in Sunday school this morning. So the first thing that Paul notes is that Psalm 68.18 is fulfilled in Christ. Okay, okay, that's fine. But again, what about the Word? Receive gifts to men, gave gifts to men. Okay, there are two theories that I find attractive, and I'm going to point them out both to you this morning. The first one is this. Paul understood any time a king came back as a victorious warrior, he would take spoil from his enemies and give it to his people. And so, one theory is that the reason Paul feels free to, to alter the word, to change it from received to give, is because he recognizes that as a victorious warrior, to receive gifts automatically means he's going to give gifts. So he's just completing the idea. And everyone would have understood that. Yes, that's what a victorious king does. He receives and then he gives. And that's the attractiveness of that proposal. It says it's very simple. It makes sense. People have understood it. But there's a second proposal I find, I think, even more attractive. And that proposal is this. Psalm 68, as I mentioned, is about God coming to reign in Jerusalem. God, as the ark is brought in, the ark represents God's presence. It's brought into the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle there, and God's presence dwelled among his people. But that creates a problem, doesn't it? Because the question the whole Bible asks is, how can a holy God dwell in the presence of an unholy people without breaking out and killing all of them? This is exactly what Isaiah thought would happen to him when he saw God in Isaiah 6, remember? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The cherubim are saying, and, and Isaiah's first thought is, woe is me. I'm about to die because my eyes have seen the king. So how can God, the holy God, put his presence right in the middle of an unholy people and those unholy people not all be destroyed? The answer is the Levites. God called the tribe of Levi Right? And he chose from among them priests, and they would offer sacrifices for the people's sin. And the whole sacrificial system was set up in order that, that God might dwell amidst his people. But let me give you a little background with the Levites. Do you remember when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt? The last plague, we no doubt remember it well, he killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. All of them, they were killed. Well, the Israelites weren't any better. 
Right? They were just as wicked as the Egyptians. Why didn't their firstborn die? Because God purchased them. The blood of the lamb was spread over the doorpost of every Israelite home, and when God passed over, when the angel of death passed over, killing the firstborn in the land, the firstborn of the Israelites were spared. But we should say more than that. They weren't simply spared, they were redeemed. They were purchased. They belonged to God. And then, God told them after He brought them out of Egypt, He said to them in Numbers 8, I'm going to read this text to you in just a second. But he said to them in Numbers 8, Your firstborn are mine. They belong to me. But instead of taking your firstborn, I'm going to take the Levites. Now, let me just pause for a second here and show you why I think Numbers 8 matches with this. And then we'll see what's going on. When you look at the quotation of Psalm 68, 18, which I'm going to suggest is a reflection on that reality of what God has done. As God came into His tabernacle and set up the Levites, I think that Numbers six, or Psalm 68, 18 is a reflection on what God did in Numbers 8. And when you look at verse 8 here, there are a lot of things that, has to, that God has to account for as we look at Numbers 8. That, that God took a host of captives, Right? That God took a people to Himself. But then Psalm 68, 18 says, He received gifts from men. And then Paul quotes it here saying, He gave gifts to men. So we've got to account for, how can God take a people? How can He receive gifts from men? And then how can He give gifts to men? Okay, I don't do this that often, but I want you all to turn to another text. So hold, hold this text and turn with me to Numbers 8. And I want to show this to you in the text. Numbers 8, Tim mentioned the page number earlier, so if you remember it. I'm kidding. It's uh, page 117 in the Red Bibles. This is the very text Tim read earlier. We're just going to read it one more time. And I want you to notice each of these elements in the text. Verse 14 of Numbers 8. Thus, Moses writes, Numbers 8, 14, Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after that, the Levites shall go in and to serve at the tent of meeting when you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering. For they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. There's our first note. They are given to God from among the people of Israel. He has received gifts from men. But let's continue on. Instead of all who open the womb, so they're given to me, instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel, I have taken them for myself, taken captive. Received gifts, taken captive. I've taken them for myself. Verse 17, for all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both of men and of beasts. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. And I've taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. And now listen to the language of verse 19. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel to do service for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel that there may be no plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near the sanctuary. I've taken them. I've received them. I've given them. Here's the picture 
of Numbers 8. God says, and this is what's reflected, I think, in Psalm 68. God says, I've taken the Levites for myself, but i got news for you. I've graced them. I've equipped them. I've made them ready for the work at the tent of meeting because my presence cannot dwell among you without them doing their work. So I've graced them, I've equipped them, and now I've given them back to you so that they may serve you so that I might dwell in your presence. This is, I think, why Paul sees it fit to change the word from receive gifts from men to give gifts to men because he knows it reflects on this reality of what God did with the Levites. And here's what Paul is saying. Just as God took the Levites to himself and graced them, gifted them, and then gave them back to his people, so he has done the same thing for you and me. Now, if that holds true, in Numbers 8, what did God give? He gave people. He gave the Levites. He didn't just give gifts. He gave them. So let's follow the argument starting in verse 7 of our text. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then he quotes Psalm 68 Uh, 18 and Numbers 8, he explains in verses 9 and 10 why he thinks this is fulfilled in Christ, and then he says this in verse 11. Now, if we're right about Numbers 8, we would anticipate Paul not now saying, and so God gave gifts to people, we would anticipate Paul saying, God gave people as gifts. And that's exactly what he says. Look at verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. In other words, what Paul is saying is just as God took a captive, a people, received gifts from among men and the Levites, and graced them and gave them back to serve the people, so he's done the same here. And what he's given to the church are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, that is, leaders. We've reflected the last few weeks on the apostles and prophets, individuals whose, whose words were written down as the very words of God and Scripture. An evangelist seems to be individuals who, who took the gospel to people whom it had not reached. So Philip in Acts 21 is called the evangelist. He, he took the gospel to the Ethiopians. Pastors. Pastors are just a, a, another name. It's a synonym for elders or overseers. We have five of them in our church. We refer to them as pastors or elders as occasions. And then interestingly, he, he doesn't, he, he ties shepherds and teachers very close together. So you'll notice the article, uh, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and he doesn't say the teachers. He, he ties them very close together. I think that's because pastors, by definition, have to be able to teach but not all teachers are pastors, right? So Paul's point is that God gave these leaders to the church in different seasons and then present now as well with the pastors, shepherds, teachers, gave these gifts, these men to the church to lead the church, but specifically the idea isn't, so God has given some leaders to the church, let's sit back and watch them do all the ministry of the church. That's not the picture. Rather, note what Paul says. In verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So in other words, God 
gave gifted leaders to the church so that they might equip the people of God, all the members of the church, so that collectively we might minister. We might be equipped for the work of ministry. Well, to what end are we ministering? Let's continue on in verse 12. For building up the body of Christ. So you and I are to be equipped by leaders in the church to be built up in the body of Christ. And we're to do that, build up the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What he's saying is, let's labor in each other's lives until we mature into all that Christ has for us to be. That's what he means by the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's he's contrasting it with, with a mature man versus being immature, verse 14, so that we're no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So God has given leaders to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We we minister to one another, building one another up so that we might grow in maturity, no longer be children, no longer be tossed about by every wind of doctrine, but so that we might be stable and steadfast. And in verse 15, speak the truth to one another in love so that we grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Now, I don't want you to miss something that is crucial in this text, because you could take what I've just said and think that Christ took some captives, graced them, and gave them back to the church as leaders. But that's not the only thing Paul says in this text. Notice the language of verse 7. But grace was given to the leaders. No, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Here's what Paul is saying. It is true the Lord has structured the church in a certain way to build it up, and that's what Paul's laying out in verses 11 and following. But what's key for us to understand this morning, and I want you to understand this, If you are a member of Cornerstone Community Church, let me tell you exactly what Christ has done in your life. If you're a member of Cornerstone Community Church, the Lord Jesus Christ has taken you captive. He has taken you in this world. He took you as His own. Remember the same way He said of those who came out of Egypt, right? I own your firstborn. When we speak of Christ purchasing us or buying us by His blood or redeeming us, the picture is you and I were enslaved and owned by a ruthless master who was a tyrant toward us. And the Lord Jesus Christ laid down His life, offered the price of His own blood, and then redeemed us out of that bought us so that now we belong to Christ. So He very clearly can say, I have taken you captive. I have received you as a gift from among men to be my own. But here's what he's done to every single one of us. Every single one of us whom he's taken captive to belong to him, he's gifted. He's graced according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, so there are different giftings, different levels of how he's gifted us. But he, every one of us, he has taken to himself and lavished grace on to make us exactly who and how he wants us to be. And then he did this. Every single one of us, he says, 
and now I'm giving you. Specifically here, if you're a member of Cornerstone, I'm giving you to Cornerstone Community Church. Each of you is a gift from Jesus Christ to this church because this church cannot function apart from you. In fact, when you get to verses 15 and 16, notice how much Paul emphasizes it takes every single one of us. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The way Paul pictures us growing, first of all, is he doesn't picture us growing in isolation. So many times I think we picture our growth in Christ being a growth apart from everybody else. I'm growing on my own. No, no, no. Paul says you're missing the picture. God took you, took others, gave you to each other, put you in a body so that when every person in the body is working properly, you corporately grow. The whole grows. My prayer is that we might look back after the last 10 years of laboring here as Cornerstone Community Church that we might say, we collectively have grown. And I hope 10 years from now, we can say, we have grown. But I just want you to see how masterful this is. Let's take an illustration of this using three individuals. Let's say one individual Christ took and he gifted and he graced with the ability to teach his word. And then he has that person. And he takes another and he gifts and he graces with the ability to encourage like nobody's business, right? Takes that person. Takes a third person. He graces, he gifts with the ability to pray. And then he takes these three individuals and he gives them to each other. I want you to just contemplate how it will affect the other two. As the one faithfully teaches the word, the one who prays is going to be better equipped to pray, isn't he? That person's going to understand. I, I now see, he taught me from Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, how to pray, and now I'm praying more effectively. The one who encourages is going to go, I understand better how to encourage. I'm, I'm, I'm growing in my ability to encourage because he's teaching me from the Bible how to encourage in a way that really encourages. The one who's encouraging now, the one who teaches is going, good grief, I, I feel like I'm so much more equipped to do this because that person's encouraging me like crazy. I can get very discouraged in this task, but I keep picking myself up because of that person's encouragement. The person who's praying going, I can grow weary in this task, but when that person encourages me, oh my goodness, I could pray and pray and pray, and then take it from the perspective of the prayer. The one who's teaching is going, not only am I teaching better because I'm getting encouraged, but I'm teaching better because he's praying for me. And the one who's encouraging is going, not only am I encouraging better because I'm being taught the word, but I'm also being prayed for by this brother, by this sister. And you can see how those three individuals with three different gifts given to one another as a body, you can see how all three of them would grow in love, can't you? Now let's imagine there were ten with diverse gifts given to one another. Oh my goodness, that's a beautiful picture. Now let's imagine there are nearly 400 
each specifically graced and gifted and given to this church so that together, when each part is working properly, the whole is built up in love. That is a beautiful picture. It is glorious. There is no, there's no wonder the world tries to imitate this. This is beautiful. And so what I don't want you to miss is each one of you is exactly what was pictured with the Levites. Captured, graced, and given. Oftentimes when we receive members, we say, we receive you this morning as a gift from Christ to us. We don't say that because we've simply run out of things to say. We say that because we're reflecting this glorious picture. And brothers and sisters, in light of that beauty, let's serve one another with our gifts. Let's use our gifts and and pour into one another so that we might be better equipped and so the whole body might grow. And let's make sure as we do this, as beautiful as it is, as much as we love it, Satan hates it. And so let's be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by taking a posture of grace toward one another. And then, brothers and sisters, let's just see what Christ does with His body as we faithfully labor as gifts from Christ to His church. And why do we think that He'll give us the grace to continue to do that? Because when we had our deepest need, when we were enemies of Christ, dead in our sins, He came and lived for us and died for us and was raised for us. And so this morning, we're going to come to the table Remembering that he met that need and trusting that he'll meet every need. If you're not a believer this morning, I long for you to place your faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins. And then I long for you to know what it's like to belong to a family that I think your heart has yearned for your whole life. So if you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you would like to talk to me or somebody else more about that, we would love to talk to you. I'll be here after the service. You can come talk to me, talk to your neighbor. I want to plead with you, though, to come and follow Christ, to profess faith and baptism, to become part of a local church where you can minister and labor and, and link arms with one another so that when every joint is working properly, we can all grow in love. If you are a believer... You profess faith in Christ, you're in good standing with the gospel preaching church. We're going to celebrate what the Lord has done for us in Jesus Christ by remembering his death and resurrection this morning. We're going to come to the table that we have pastor on either side, that we have pastor over there. This side will come here, this side here, that side there. As you come forward, there will be two cups, one stack of two cups. Top one with juice, the bottom with bread. Just take one stack of those two cups and return to your seat. The first row will be followed by the second, third, and so on and so forth. We're going to have a time of silence before we come to the table. That time of silence will allow the missions to come forward, the pastors are in place, but it will also allow all of us just take a moment in light of what we've heard from this text and just thank God for the glory of the church and pray that He will equip us to faithfully minister to one another so that we may all be built up in love. So let's take a moment of silence now as we come to the table this morning.